Hello, I'm Emma Kennedy. Welcome to Why, the podcast that explores those conundrums and nagging questions that live in the back of our minds. trying to remember if I've ever been outdone, bamboozled or daubed in by a plant. There was the time, strawberry picking, where I presented my rammed punnet and was met with a quizzical air of disbelief when asked if I'd been merrily stuffing myself rather than dropping them into the receptacle provided. No, I had lied as the pimpled youth stared at the strawberry-coloured smear on my chin and then pointed at it saying, you missed a bit before ringing me up for a punnet more than I'd declared. Today on Why, we're asking, how do plants solve crimes? It seems faintly ridiculous that plants can solve crimes, but they really can. Plants, it turns out, are regular little Sherlock Holmes, assisting criminal investigations like the busiest bee in the village. The analysis of plant and fungal parts, leaves, Flowers, pollen, seeds, wood, fruit, spores and microbiology have all played a part, small and large, in the uncovering of some of the worst crimes imaginable. Plant science can help catch killers, solve crimes and save lives in the process. A stray piece of pollen on clothing can place a suspect at a crime scene. A seed particle can determine where a crime was committed and a plant toxin can identify whether poison was used to kill. We're all used to officers dusting for fingerprints, but oftentimes it's the botanical fingerprint that will crack the case. It's the glorious versatility of plants. They can kill and help find killers at the same time. This is the world of forensic botany. The killer threw the body in a ditch and then grabbed some sunflowers growing alongside the road and pulled them up and dumped them on top of the body to sort of cover it up somehow. In this case, they wanted to know how long had the body been there. David Gibson is Emeritus Professor of Plant Biology at Southern Illinois University and author of Planting Clues. The first case that was really brought in and accepted into, into a court of law was the Lindbergh kidnapping back in the 1930s when the young child of the famous bloke that flew across the Atlantic. So he was a sort of a celebrity. And one night his child was kidnapped from the nursery upstairs in in their house. Part of the evidence that was brought into the court was wood. So the kidnapper had made a ladder from wood that he got from the place he worked. He worked in a a, a timber facility, but he also took some pieces of wood out of his attic at his home. And he he fashioned these bits of woods together to make a ladder. And he left the ladder at the scene of the crime. It was broken up, wasn't it? So it was in pieces, yeah. Yeah, he probably just threw it down on the ground as he ran away with the child. Uh, But they put put it back together. They brought in a forester and uh, he identified the wood he figured out what it was. It was bits of pine and things like that. And he, he spent several months working out where these pieces of wood, had, the rails and the rungs had come from, matched them up with the, the saws in the sawmills and with the wood in the attic of the suspect that they had. Because there were specific cuts, weren't there, in the wood? 
I remember this reading your book that there were very specific cuts in the wood and then they were able to link that with specific sawmills. There were only like a very small amount of, of sawmills who had this particular configuration of teeth in a saw. Something like that. Yes, it was related to that. At that particular time when those boards were produced, that particular sawmill would, had, had changed things around a little bit and it made it even more definitive. And of course, the tools that the, the suspect Bruno uh, Hoffman had in his own home matched up with the, the, the planing on uh, some of the rails and rungs and things like that. So it wasn't just a question of what the plants were, it's how they were configured, if you like. But the judge was asked by the defense to throw it all out. And he said, no, no, this forester that you brought in is an expert. He knows his stuff and I can accept his evidence. So that really set the precedent, as they refer to it in law, precedent for that sort of evidence. Can you explain what the evidence triangle is? Any sort of forensic evidence can link between a suspect, a crime scene, and a victim. So the idea is that you want to try and place a suspect at the crime scene. You want to link, using evidence, that suspect to the crime scene and to the victim. So that's the triangle. And going deeper into that, there's something called the Lockhart's Exchange Principle, isn't there? Yes. Edmund Lockhart is sort of the father of forensics, really. And he was a, a police investigator back in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, who founded the first forensic laboratory in Lyon in France. And in his writings, he noted that evidence can be carried by suspects or get onto victims and move around. And that's the idea of how the triangle I just mentioned works, that evidence will be carried away from the crime scene by a suspect, and that can tie him back to the crime scene or the victim. So it's basically when two substances touch, they each take a part of the other away with them. Essentially, yes. And didn't he inspire some famous writers? He did, yes. Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, author of Sherlock Holmes, I believe a friend of his, or met him, and, and they, they visited with each other and sort of inspired each other, I gather. So how are plants able to uncover secrets? They can often be these tiny little particles or organic dusts that Lockhart talked about, where they get caught up by suspects you know, in the mud on their shoes and so forth. They can be the sort of evidence that the suspect would have no idea that they were carrying away from the crime scene as they walk away. So they can be sort of invisible evidence. Mm. And Ted Bundy, which was a very famous serial killer in America, he was basically undone by plants, wasn't he? Well, yes. His last victim, when he kidnapped them, some plant material apparently got caught up in the underside of his vehicle. And they could then identify those plant fragments and match them up with plants growing at the crime scene. So that's that linkage we talked mm. about before. Yeah. And he would, of course, have no idea. And he, apparently he was a genius anyway, very bright man for all his problems, but just have no idea that he's carrying away bits of plants underneath his car. And if you drive along the road, you often see sort of plant stuff. You'll think about it now. You'll see plant stuff caught up underneath vehicles and you think, oh, I, I can tell them where they've come from now. And what scientific methods are used in forensic botany? What is the process that has gone through? Well, it, it's going to depend upon the type of evidence. I mean, large pieces of plants like the stuff caught underneath the car can be just kind of looked at with the, the naked eye with a little hand lens and then it's a question of identifying correctly what those are some things are going to require putting onto a microscope slide 
and a dissecting microscope. And then, of course, pollen and seeds are going to require a greater magnification microscopic work. And in terms of the development of the science of forensic botany, what were the great leaps forward? What were the game-changing moments? There was work by Jane Bock, who pioneered looking at stomach contents, looking at plant fragments to identify the last meals that people might have eaten. She is a emeritus professor at University of Colorado in Boulder, and she's an ecologist. But in this particular case, they wanted to know with this murder victim what had been going on up to the point that this girl was murdered. The lead criminal investigator had taken, or the pathologist had sort of looked at the stomach contents. They do that to kind of get some idea of when the person might have had their last meal. I suppose he must have just seen bits and pieces in there and thought, I wonder if this could tell us what's going on. So they knew she had a hamburger for lunch and the uh, investigator, I suppose, must have thought there must be more to it than that. And so he's, he knew or knew of Jane Bock as someone that might be able to help. And so he contacted her and she uh, contacted one of her friends called Norris to help her. And they said, well, we don't want to actually see any body parts or anything like that. Just send us some stuff. And so they started looking at this, this uh, material, little plant fragments from the stomach of, of the victim. But the problem was that you've got to have a reference sample. So if you say it's lettuce, you've got to have a, a known lettuce to say, well, this is lettuce, they match up. So they literally went to the supermarket, got some suspected foods and were, were chewing them up and spitting them out and making slides. I mean, it's not just going to be a piece of lettuce. It's got to be like it would be in someone's stomach. Yeah. So anyway, so they were able to, to work out that this from that, that this victim had had another meal, the last meal that was from a, a salad bar. There were some beans and things like that. And that was a Wendy's salad bar. Then when they finally got a suspect, they were able to, to, to tie in the suspect to that particular restaurant because the staff said, oh yeah, he was in there with this girl. And so that put the, the suspect in the same location as the last known contact with the victim. He turned out to be a serial killer, didn't he? He'd, he'd befriended her boyfriend and then had been sort of stalking her quietly and, and walked up to her at a bus stop and said, oh, hello, do you remember me? And then took her off to Wendy's for a salad. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's horrible. But this was a landmark case because it brought in this sort of evidence for the first time. There are stories in your book as well about, about moss and grass. Yes, well, I mean, they're plants as well, so they can be of evidentially value. Mosses can be like any other plant fragment. It could be important for tying a suspect to a crime scene. Another use of mosses was in working out what's called the post-mortem interval, how long a body has been dead, basically. And in one case, that was in Portugal, I think, they wanted to know how long some skeletonized remains had been out in the forest. So it looked at these, these mosses were growing over the, the skull. One or two of the particular species of mosses grew in a particular way that every year they produce a shoot with some branches off it, and next year another shoot, some more branches. So you can count how many of these whorls of branches and gives you an idea of how long that moss has been growing, which gives an indication of how long the skull had been sitting there. And sphagnum moss is significant as well, isn't it? Yes. Well, that was a case that was carried out by one of my colleagues here called Barbara Crandall-Stotler. And she is an internationally known moss expert or bryophyte expert. And she was called into a case, which is a horrible case, where a young man had um, gone to a house late at night and raped a mother. 
and then set fire to the house and in doing so killed her two young children. But again, once they got a suspect, they needed to tie him to the scene of the crime. And they did that because they found on his clothes that were in his pickup truck, some pieces of moss. And this was sphagnum moss. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very commonly used moss in peat moss. But in this particular case, it turned out that there'd been a pot plant in the room. And while the victim was trying to fend off unsuccessfully the, uh, the killer, this had got knocked over. And so pieces of the, of the, the peat moss had got under her fingernails, on her body, on her clothes, and on the killer's clothes as well. It took uh, a little bit of work by by the expert, Dr. Crandall Stotler. You know, she had to take the fragments that she was given and put them under a microscope to get the correct identification. But again, it tied things together very nicely. But justice delivered by a plant. <laughs> So we've heard that microscopic pollen and sticky soil can catch serial killers, but let's dig a little deeper. What if the death isn't murder, but is an accident or even suicide? Can plants determine that? They can, yes. There was a case in Italy, I believe, where a woman's body was found in the street. And the first thought was it was some sort of hit and run but they found that the caught up in her hair were fragments of plants. And when they looked up above the body, they found about three stories up some plants growing on the balcony that matched up with the plant fragments in her hair. And so in the end, they determined that what she had done, she had actually thrown herself off the top floor and on the way down, her head must have knocked onto the, the balcony and got some of these plant fragments on her. So that got onto her body, and so they, they decided that it wasn't a hit-and-run. They didn't have to be looking for some hit-and-run driver. It was an unfortunate suicide, and the plants told the story. And are there any areas in which the science of forensic botany is still lacking? Yeah, there's a couple of areas that I think it's lacking. One is clandestine graves. When someone buries a body, they disturb the soil. And what we do know is that um, in that disturbed soil, there'll be a flush of plants that grow, seeds that germinate, annual plants that come up, given this opportunity to grow where they couldn't grow normally because there's all this other vegetation. But that's about all we know. There hasn't really been too much investigation to, to see if the types of plants could help us with the timing of that burial. Could we look at the types of plants, different species of plants, and use that as a barometer for the timing of when that burial was done? There's been some work done with using pigs, pig cadavers, showing you know the proof of concept is good, but it hasn't really been looked at with, with human body remains. Uh, it, it could be because there are these so-called body farms around the, the world where people bury bodies and they put out bodies and they look at the succession of, of the breakdown of the body. And it would take some research to, to look at the plants that grow on top of them to investigate that. So in terms of the limitation, is it that you can't determine how long the degradation of the plants or is it the plant's effect on the degradation of the body? No, it's, it's, it's neither, I think. It's what in ecology we call plant succession. When a, 
an area of land is disturbed, the different species of plants that come in, that colonize, will follow a sequence. So you get particular sorts of plants early on, and later on you get different sorts of plants. Right. And so what we don't really know is, is what is the sequence of plants that follows the burial of a body? And is, is that predictive enough for us to determine the, the timing of that burial? Is that sequence only going to happen if there is a body there? We don't really know. It could be different because if you just go out and you dig up some soil and then throw it down again and get a shovel and, and turn over, you, you're going to get a sequence of plants. Following any sort of disturbance, there's going to be a sequence of plants. Now, does the body make a difference? It could make a difference because as a body decomposes, either on the ground or below the ground, there's a whole load of chemicals that are re released. And bodies, as they decompose, tend to sort of poison, acidify the soil. And so the sorts of plants might be quite different to what you might get if you just disturb the soil because of that, that massive flux of nutrients from the decomposition of the body. Because the body is a big, a big structure, right? And there's a lot mm. of chemicals in it that's going to break down a lot of uh, breakdown products. And so depending how deep the body is buried, it could make quite a difference. But we just really don't know at this point. Gosh, fascinating. Do plants ever get it wrong, David? <laughs> well, I don't think they get it wrong, but it can, be, it can be conflicting evidence. Another case was the famous Casey Anthony case. In that case, a young mother was involved and her young daughter disappeared. And, you know, she was like, I didn't do it. The nanny did it, grandfather did it, and all sorts of things. But as part of that case, they eventually found the body out in the woods. And they wanted to know how long her body had been lying on the ground. So the defense brought in Jane Bach, and the prosecution brought in a fellow called Hall, who was another forensic botanist of note, both of them experts. And they both asked them in court, how long has the body been on the ground? And I forget what David Hall said, but Jane Box said two months. And they said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, because of the, the way the roots were growing up into the body and, and the decomposition of the leaves, in my expert opinion, I think it's two months. His answer was different. And so we have these two experts, known experts in forensic botany, given different expert opinions about the mm. same evidence. Mm. So in a way, they kind of nullified each other, you know. <laughs> So what are the next developments in forensic botany? What can we look forward to? One thing that is moving forward is called eDNA, environmental DNA. And this is moving forward not just for forensic botany, but for all sorts of environmental things. And this is the idea that all living organisms shed into the environment, you know, skin fragments and so forth, uh, but also DNA, their own DNA. And so you can then sample the environment you can sample soil you can sample water you can sample the air and you can then extract the dna from that sample and figure out what the organisms were that, that were in that environment but that's how we do COVID testing on sewage water really that's how it's done yes you know you know there's not much COVID testing being done right now but what they do do is to take sewage water and they look for the DNA of, of COVID. And, that, and the, the amount of that gives them an idea of the extent to which COVID is in that, from that particular sample. So a similar sort of thing could be used in, in criminal cases. So for example, 
uh, in Chicago, there's a problem with Asian carp that they don't want to get into the Great Lakes. But there are rivers that drain into the Great Lakes and there are weirs to regulate the water. These rivers that drain into the, the Great Lakes up there are chock full of these massive great Asian carp that uh, are a terrible invasive species. Well, they, f they found that looking at some of the water in these weirs, that there was a DNA of the Asian carps were in that water, making them think that the fish were probably in those waters as well. They just were not at high abundance yet. They haven't found them yet. And so that's not a crime per se, but it's a an issue. So I'm pretty sure that this could be a, some sort of evidence that could be used with it, which plant DNA or animal DNA or something else could be uh, of forensic value in the future. If you're ever walking in a field or a wood and you suddenly come across a body-shaped area of botanical abundance, it might be worth donning your monk's habit and picking up a spade. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor David Gibson. Oh, thank you. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Emma Kennedy asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Emma Kennedy. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Theme music is by DJ Food, with artwork by Jim Parrott. Why is a Podmasters production.